The following broadcast is released under a Creative Commons license. I believe in Jesus Christ, the only Son of God. I believe He lived and died, and that He rose again. I believe and trust in Him. Ascended into hell, Christ our living head will one day come again to judge the living and the dead. I believe and trust in Him. I will trust in my Redeemer, sing of His love. That lasts forever Know His hope And sure salvation I will trust in Him Though the world Falls around me I rest And know That He has found me Christ the rock Is my Welcome all to Pastor Yeshua. You've been listening to Creed by Richard Jensen from his album, Order of Service. By way of introduction, Pastor is an acrostic which stands for Preaching All Salvation Through One Redeemer. Our Redeemer, Yeshua, Jesus, is the Hebrew name for the Lord. It means Yahweh, the Lord, is salvation. Translated from Hebrew into the Greek language, the name Yeshua becomes Jesus. The English transliteration for Jesus is Jesus. This program deals with apologetics, questions on and about God, the Bible, and the Christian faith. I take questions and seek by Scripture to give answers and encouragement for everyone, including the tough-minded living in today's skeptical society. And now, let's join Pastor Yeshua. Welcome to Pastor Yeshua. Presently, by God's grace, we are undertaking a complete exegetical study of Paul's letter to the Romans. In our last episode, we examined Romans chapter 1, verses 16 through 18. In this episode, we continue our trek verse by verse through Paul's epistle to the Romans. Keep in mind, as stated, that Paul is now on his third missionary journey, writing from the city of Corinth to the church at Rome, where Paul has not yet visited. Let's continue our study of Romans with chapter 1, verse 18, where we left off last time. Verse 18, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who hold the truth in unrighteousness. Now you will recall that in our last episode we spent a lot of time on verse 18 with regard to, in particular, the situation that was historically the case in the city of Corinth in particular and the surrounding areas of Rome in general. 
What is instructive is as we look at that historical situation then, we can compare it very much to the historical situation in which we find ourselves today. That being that we are in a revolution of rebellion against God, wherein i.e. God does not exist, or that the God that does exist has been largely redefined, dumbed down, or recreated in the image of sinful man in order to allow sinful man to do the things that are right in his own eyes. We imagine ourselves today to be more progressive, more inclusive, and more understanding against these situations only because we have legislated them largely and petitioned them to become uh, normalized against what God's Word, the Bible, says. And for those who find themselves marginally, quote-unquote, Christians, what they do is they redefine God's Word or exclude certain verses in order to accommodate these behaviors. So again, as to leave themselves without guilt, leave themselves without condemnation. But the truth of the matter is that as we look at the historical setting of the city of Corinth and Roman in general, we see that the situation then is actually worse than it is now. We had both adult men and women who were engaged in all manner of all types of uh, sexual deviancy and sexual immorality. And in addition to that, we also had minor children who were involved both voluntarily and involuntarily in the same types of behaviors there. Thirdly, the behaviors that were going on were not only tolerated, but were actually celebrated at all levels of the community and within the government as accepted norms, which is exactly the situation that we find ourselves in now, wherein we are heading towards almost complete blanket acceptance of all forms of immorality, and rather looking at them as rebellion, we in fact look at them as tolerance, inclusion, and the, of course, ever undefined love. But as we look at verses 17 and 18, what we find is this, this, this wrath of God, which is spoken of by Paul. Paul says that it is revealed in the past tense from heaven against all ungodliness and of unrighteousness of men. And so the question provokes itself as to in what way and where and how is this revealed from God, uh, from heaven against all ungodliness? Well, we know for certain that the revelation is certainly given to those who are blessed as a condition of being given this revelation as a free gift bestowed to those whom God sovereignly elects and chooses as part of our discernment. And by the same token that God demonstrates his perfect love, grace, and mercy, and forgiveness to those who do not deserve it. We also know that by the same token that God demonstrates his perfect love, grace, mercy, and forgiveness to those who do not deserve it, which includes all of us. 
Likewise, God sovereignly passes by others in order to demonstrate his perfect righteousness, justice, and holiness, which would include the unregenerate. Now, again, to be fair, it should be understood that according to Romans chapter 3, which eventually we will get to, we, one and all, throughout history, are all, quote-unquote, ungodly, as is the case in the uh, ungodliness referred to in verse 18. We have all sinned against God, and we all deserve death, hell, and the grave. So we all deserve and fall into this category in verse 18. The miracle is that by God's grace and mercy, he chooses to dip into the pool of this uh, unrighteousness mentioned in verse 18, the pool of death, hell, and the grave, and to save some, according to verse 17, according to his mercy and grace. But again, the interesting part of this verse is where it refers to the unregenerate as those, quote, who hold the truth in unrighteousness, unquote. So, if indeed, as suggested, this group are those whom God has sovereignly passed over, then the fact that God is pouring out his wrath exposes the reality that they are without Christ. If they were in Christ, then they would no longer be subject to God's wrath because we know that because God's wrath was fully poured out on Christ because of sin, then those who are in Christ are no longer subject to God's wrath. This then can only be a prophetic perfect tense in this uh, verse, meaning that this verse is ultimately looking through the mind of God who sees all things from eternity past. In this case, God ultimately knows whom he will elect to choose to salvation and whom he will pass over to the judgment of just damnation. In specific, if this group is in bondage of sin, if they lack discernment, if they have no fear of God in their eyes, then we know that conversely they are blinded by the power of sin, the flesh, and Satan. These do only what is right in their, and good in their own eyes. If so, the question is, what quote-unquote truth is it that they quote-unquote hold or quote-unquote suppress in their condition of unrighteousness? The question is, is there a common quote-unquote truth? This verse very strongly seems to imply it. Verse 19, because that which may be known of God is manifest in them, for God hath showed it unto them. So verse 18 continues to build on verse 18 and the idea that unrighteous men hold or suppress the truth in unrighteousness. In this case, there is some quote-unquote truth, according to verse 19, uh, which is constantly in an ongoing sense made known or manifest, apparent, evident, or recognized in these people 
because God has exposed it, I made it apparent. He has taught it, revealed it, or made it visible to the unregenerate. At this point, it's helpful to use what we know of Scripture to theorize what this quote-unquote truth is which is being given to the unregenerate, which Paul is referring to here. Well, first of all, we may assume safely that the quote-unquote truth which is uh, made known of God, which God is giving to the unregenerate, is absent the ingredient or ingredients of God's effectual calling to salvation. How do we know this? Well, if this ingredient were present, then we know that according to Romans chapter 11, verse 29, that the gifts and the calling of God are without repentance. In other words, if the quote-unquote truth which may be known of God included his effectual call to salvation, then they would no longer be unregenerate. They instead would be transformed and be made a new creation and thus children of God. Well then, the quote-unquote truth which may be known of God must then be limited to these unregenerate. Second, if the truth is limited, then what is its purpose if not to lead to salvation? The answer is that it can only be to one degree or another used and given ultimately as a means by which God holds the unregenerate accountable to that quote-unquote truth which he is pleased to reveal to them. Verse 20, which follows, clearly verifies this very theory. Verse 20, for the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. So here in verse 20, we learn more about the quote-unquote truth which may be known of God. And according to Paul, this quote-unquote truth consists of invisible things, literally in Greek, aerotos, a compound word, a or a, meaning not or without, and oratos, meaning visible. So these not visible things of God have been quote-unquote clearly seen, or as in the Greek, katharao, which is another compound word, kata, meaning to look down, see from above, view on high, and opa, which means to see thoroughly, to perceive clearly, or to understand. And being understood, noeo, which means perceived with the mind, understood, pondered, or considered by the things that are made, poema, I, in Greek, the works of God the Creator, I, His creation. These things include God's eternal power and His divine nature. Finally, we are given the purpose, which is to eliminate all excuse and to convict the unregenerate on these grounds alone. So, to put it simply, God bestows every person with a conscience 
with the basic knowledge of God the Creator. Every person in the world old enough to be accountable, past, present, and future, has a basic knowledge of God's eternal power and divinity. This information has been given clearly, plainly, and distinctively, and is understood by all creation. And on that basis, all people are without excuse and without legal defense. So, the question arises then, if everyone has a basic knowledge of God which is enough to convict them from God's perspective, then why do we see such divergence across history from person to person? Well, firstly, as stated, the quote-unquote truth provided is only sufficient to convict them and prevent anyone from claiming that they did not know. But this quote-unquote truth is either independent of or absent the effectual calling by God to repentance. Therefore, by itself, while it will always lead to conviction of guilt, it will only lead to repentance and salvation if and when it is accompanied by God's effectual calling. For the saved person, the quote-unquote truth can only now take root, sprout, and bring forth fruit in the form of justification, sanctification, and eventual glorification. This is because the seed of quote-unquote truth is accompanied by the power, the dunamis of God, manifested by His grace through faith in Christ and His finished work implanted in our hearts and minds via the indwelling Holy Spirit in our lives. Conversely, for the unregenerate, as self-will, rebellion, and the flesh grow, sin grows and flourishes. And like water, the natural unregenerate state always seeks to justify and excuse itself in order to silence whatever conscience which would generate any sense of guilt, shame, or remorse. This is what verse 18 which says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all unrighteousness and all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. In this case, the word quote-unquote suppress is the Greek word kosterizo, from which we get the modern word cauterize, which of course is a method of using some very hot metal or other material to burn or to sear a wound. This has the effect of stopping bleeding, closing the wound, causing healing, but leaving a scar with flesh that is now largely, if not completely, insensitive to feeling. As we consider the issue of the idea that the unregenerate have a conscience which to some degree testifies to the quote-unquote truth of God, it would logically follow that all mankind has the same conscience. Whatever name one prefers, whether conscience, spirit, soul, nature, et al., that part of man made in the image of God was corrupted at the fall and is now outside Christ 
in an unregenerate state bound to death, hell, and the grave. In fact, we get further instruction on the matter in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 22. Here, from the beginning of the chapter, Paul instructs us regarding the details of Christ's better role as mediator, priest, performing his propitiatory role. He discusses the everyday practical effects of the once and for all effectiveness of what Christ has accomplished. In verse 22, we are told, quote, Let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and with the full assurance that faith brings, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water, unquote. In the original, the word translated quote-unquote guilty is poneros, which means evil, bad, diseased, wicked, etc. The word conscience is senedeus, which means the conscience or the soul, which distinguishes what is morally good or bad and encourages or discourages accordingly. Here, we learn in context that a relationship with Christ cleanses and transforms us from a conscience which is damaged due to sin and provides us with the new mind of Christ as per 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 16. In the end, we learn that every man has a conscience or soul which is like every other part of man is under the bondage of sin according to our nature. This conscience or soul is only sufficient ultimately to serve as witness to convict us as guilty before God. As we will learn going forward, the more we rebel and resist God and or our conscience, the more our heart is hardened and eventually seared to any future guidance or conviction. It is only by Christ's finished work that the whole man, including the soul and or conscience, are a new creation filled by the indwelling Holy Spirit by which Christ sanctifies us to the fullness and stature of his likeness. Verse 21, Because that when they knew God, they glorified him not as God, neither were thankful, but became vain in their imaginations, and their foolish heart was darkened. Verse 21 here gives the reason that God's wrath is poured out upon the unrighteous in verse 18. What's that reason? The reason is that from God's perspective, he provided sufficient information for us to know his power and deity. Verse 20. But, despite knowing his power and deity, the unregenerate do not glorify or thank God for his power and deity. Now, keep in mind that the power and deity of God creates and sustains our lives, our every breath, our sight, our ability to think, to speak, to taste, to love, and to do anything which we do. No, instead, the unregenerate rather than glorifying God, become vain, 
they're morally wicked in their imaginations, their inward reasoning, their thoughts, their deliberating and or questioning of what is true. As a result, that heart, which is already foolish, i.e. unintelligent, without understanding and wicked, is darkened, i.e. to cover with darkness, to deprive of light. So, true to form, we know that the unregenerate nature of man's heart is according to Jeremiah chapter 17, verse 9, which says, quote, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? Unquote. Sadly, as the spiritual decay continues, the more that unregenerate man forgets God, the more that our vanity increases. The more that our vanity increases, the more that God delivers us to our nature of sin, and our hearts, minds, and souls, and consciousness are darkened. The danger and the fear is that the unregenerate man never sees himself as darkened or in a state of being unregenerate. Instead, the poison of vanity induces the delusion that one is in fact supposedly enlightened. The symptoms of the process of death through unregenerate vanity include the belief that not only does God not exist, but the insistence and belief in God by others in whatever numbers is the explanation as to why problems exist in the world today. Were it not for God, or the belief in God, and or his word, well, mankind could get beyond the problems which exist, and humanism would at last be able to usher in utopia. Verse 22. Professing themselves to be wise, they became fools. So, here, when people ignore their conscience and or the Holy Spirit, their hearts become increasingly hardened and vain in their imaginations, I worthless, foolish, reasoning with inward questionings. They ultimately become fools, i.e. persons without insight. And ultimately, we find in Psalm 14.1 that the conclusion of that situation is this, quote, The fool hath said in his heart, There is no God, unquote. Verse 23, And change the glory of the uncorruptible God into an image made like to corruptible man and to birds and four-footed beasts and creeping things. So, as these people who are unregenerate continue to harden their hearts and to choose to ignore God, God gives them their choice. He allows Satan, the world, the flesh, and man's sinful nature to take over in their lives. And ultimately, these people assume their own definitions of good and evil, right and wrong, so as to justify their actions in their own mind. The depths of man's depravity is directly proportional to his lack of submission to 
and fear of God. The unregenerate man knows nothing of God and eventually substitutes what little conscious knowledge of God's power and deity with a deified version of man as the ultimate source of authority. Other times, man simply worships the creature rather than the creator. Verse 24, Wherefore, or as a result of, God also gave them up to uncleanness through the lusts of their own hearts, to dishonor their own bodies between themselves. So here, as the unregenerate person continues their progress to progressively reject and rebel against the general revelation of God, their conscience and the external call from God's people, God then begins to progressively withdraw himself from them. God hardens the heart or allows it to be hardened and allows Satan's sin in the flesh in the world to increase their hold on that person. Without God, sin and rebellion, like water, seek their lowest level, where in the end they stagnate and they breed disease and death. Man ultimately degenerates to the basest level of being an animal driven by compulsion, greed, lust, and self-indulgence. God, the Bible, and God's people become the default enemy to be insulted, devalued, ignored, and eliminated in order to avoid any source which serves to condemn the unregenerate of their wickedness and their ultimate fate. Since ultimately the church i.e. the bride of Christ, is one of a relationship between Christ, i.e. the groom, and his elect, i.e. the bride, then the relationships between men and women within the ordained covenant relationship of marriage stands as the God-designed type representing Christ and his church. Consequently, it is no surprise that Satan seeks to deviate and corrupt marriage, sexual relationships, and gender in order to dishonor God and any relationships which he has designed, replacing them with self-centered, lustful, confused relationships which damage and contradict God's sovereign design and will for man's will. This concludes this episode. Now, if you have any questions about God, the Bible, or the Christian faith, I encourage you to send me an email at pastor underscore Yeshua at yahoo.com. That's P-A-S-T-O-R underscore Y-E-S-H-U-A at yahoo.com. Thank you for listening.